0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to a new episode of Feeling Film. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me is my best friend and co-host, Patrick.
0: Hey, everyone.
1: For this conversation, we are tackling Hayao Miyazaki's new... And maybe final film, The Boy and the Heron, this year maybe. saw us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did you say? Did you say not likely?
0: I said maybe. I'm just. I keep thinking, is this his second, third, fourth, fifth world tour, uh, farewell tour, like share? <laughs> yeah, be it's, his, it is? it's his.
1: second second time. He said it was his final film, but there's already pretty strong rumors to the opposite that this is, or that to the contrary, this is not going to be his final film. So. Yeah, we we will see. Um he is like Tom Brady is it who who is it that keeps coming out of retirement? Tom Brady did it once. Somebody do it multiple times. Brett Favre, I think, was that way. Yeah. Right? Somebody did it Brett, Brett Favre. Well, anyway, folks, uh, we won't go into a bunch of sports metaphors for those who don't care. This year saw us receive new animated work from both Miyazaki and Makoto Shinkai, the latter of which we discussed last week on our episode about Suzume. That film didn't hit quite as hard for us as most of Shinkai's previous work has, but maybe Miyazaki has delivered another masterpiece for us to gush over? I guess we're going to find out. This is your spoiler warning. We're going to attempt to spoil the movie. Sorry. Sorry. We're going to attempt to spoil it. <laughs> we would have to understand it to do that. But no, we are gonna we're going to spoil the movie in depth, so if you haven't seen it, Get to a theater and check it out. All right, Patrick. (laughs) So I'll I'll say my part first real quick. I saw this film at its North American premiere at Toronto International Film Festival. I was extremely happy about that. It was one of my main goals the moment it was announced. Was not going to miss that opportunity. This was one of my most anticipated films of the year. Very, 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 very excited. There are a couple elements that went into that viewing that I think might have altered my experience in a way that is not like what I had when I saw this a second time. I took a lot of expectations into that viewing, a lot of hope. I was seeing it subtitled, but also from way back up high in like a balcony. I mean, I could see it fine, but. It was not my typical movie going experience. Certainly wasn't seeing it in IMAX the second time around that I just did from a close to the screen and, and the visual largeness aspect. And there was just that festival hype around it. You know, being in the room for the first time it was being played in North America is kind of a big deal, feeling wise. And I came out of it really liking it, or I should say, really appreciating it. And I think over-inflating some of the things that I liked about it while under, like, valuing my criticisms, which I went back and listened to my review of it, and they're definitely there, and they're definitely the same. And for me, I have to say that, unfortunately, I thought going back to see this a second time in English was going to clean up many of my issues with the movie the pacing, and the story issues specifically, it did not. (laughs) In fact, I came out of it feeling worse, having a pretty big conversation with my kids and a friend that came with us in the theater, standing there talking after it, and I picked up on quite a few other viewers around me, commenting as soon as it ended, saying things that were very similar, and so I come to this podcast feeling very disappointed because this is a movie that I really really wanted to love. I want it much like Suzume for me with Shinkai there is a level of masterpiece that both of these directors have put out multiple times that has worked for me and so when it doesn't it's just it's sad and it, and it and that's how I feel. I feel like It got wasted for me. And, you know, I don't know how many more Miyazaki's got in him. He's an old man. So, you know, I hope this isn't honestly what he has to go out on. That's my ramble and opening thoughts. How did it play for you on a first viewing?
0: Well, I enjoyed it. I I think that you and I, we are on some level equal when it comes to our appreciation for anime. I, I would say... If the late Satoshi Kon came out with something new, I would go see it because I really, really liked his stuff beyond just appreciating anime, like getting into I I was watching this movie and kept thinking back to what was the first Miyazaki movie that I saw? And it was The Wind Rises, like it was his last final, final (laughs) Yeah, that's his, kind because, of weird. Because, because, because I, this was back in, what, 2012, I think, or 2013. That's when it came out, and, yeah. And I had I had been talking. Somebody had one of his backgrounds on their computer screen. And I was like, Ooh, is that? that's really pretty. And they were telling me about him and Studio Ghibli. And I was like, I know nothing about this stuff. And, of course, this is before the podcast. And so this coworker introduced me to him, and she showed me three – of of his movies uh one of them was obviously the wind rises the other one was of course his his most famous one there's several but the one that people like point to in that spirited Away. and then i believe it was uh, howl's moving castle like the all of them were and all of them were dubbed uh howl's moving castle i I remember oh christian Bale's in this this is great oh my gosh you've got um you've got oh who was it uh the Jack Ryan, the, the, the new Jack Ryan in the wind rises, uh, playing, um, I can't remember his name from the office, uh, Jim from the office anyway. But, um, I went into this with sort of a, a middle of the road expectation because I'm not the hype guy for Miyazaki. Um, like I would even put Shinkai above him in terms of like, yes, I would be more inclined to go see a Shinkai movie if given the option of seeing one or the other first. In this case, I did because they released you know, differently. And so my my expectations were sort of middle of the road. I enjoyed it. I I definitely, in general, will say that I enjoy a dub more than a sub. And I think more because Miyazaki takes you into that world of fantasy pretty consistently. His MO, his MO. And so when I'm able to listen to the voice cast, and if it's a good voice cast and it's it takes you into talking animals and great voice work and stuff like that, I'm more inclined to be engaged in the story and focus more on the fantastical elements. I think we talked about this. I don't know if we talked about it offline or not, but there's this idea that it takes you about 20 to 30 minutes to get focused on any one thing when you start doing it. If it's writing, if it's studying. In the case of a movie, and this is for me with most movies, like even like a docu-series, it's going to take me a minute to get acclimated because you're switching your brain from doing one thing to another. Even if you go from like one movie to another, which I'm not like you, I don't have that superpower because uh, I'm not as heavily into the the film critics world as you are, even though I am uh, part of the film critics society now. There's, this didn't take me as long to get into, I think because I started with a normal like experience. And then it started kind of gradually getting into, Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's a Miyazaki moment. Yeah. Okay. Talking bird. Great. Uh, Oh, look, there's some weird kind of crazy, like, like neon stuff happening. Okay. All right. And so for, for the most part, my experience of the movie was about on par with something like spirited away. It wasn't something that I was going, Oh my gosh, it felt more normalized to me, honestly. So when I was watching these this trilogy of movies to start out with to getting into to his filmography it was more of a house moving castle to me where you have a grounded story with fantastical elements whereas like spirited away is like all about the fantasy and then you've got the wind rises which is really more of a straightforward story and i gravitate towards those that's is what i i like i like the give me a story that i can connect to and i think that's why i like shinkai so much is because he uses the culture around him and he'll throw some sci-fi elements in there. In this case, he threw some fantasy elements with Miyazaki. I sort of had to kind of position my mind to go, okay, when am I, am I ready for, <laughs> am I ready for the fantasy? And I was, I appreciated that. I understood the story for the most part. Um, just like any other good anime, I think I'd have to watch it a second time. And again, I'll probably will. I'll probably double feature this with, um, with Suzume. So that I can just get a different perspective on it um, by being able to just be, you know, in my own element as opposed to being in a theater. But overall, yeah, it was good. Um, Wasn't something that I I wasn't disappointed, but my expectations weren't as high as yours is what I get to.
1: So that's interesting. You know, I like what you are saying there about how it is easier for you to get into because it's not as fantastical, (laughs) which is the opposite of the majority of Miyazaki movies. And that was backwards for me. Not Maybe not that it wasn't easy to get into. I think as a story, this takes a while to get into the fantasy side. I mean, yeah, we get the heron showing up and talking, but it's not like having a conversation talking. It's just squawks a couple of mojito or, you know... You know, come follow me. And that's it. It's not like a big thing. It's very minimalistic. And and outside of that, it's just him. Dealing with this rough hand he's been dealt after having seen his mom, well, maybe not seen his mom die, but having experienced his mother dying during the war in a fire, the hospital she's working with and then being. Driven off into the country with his father, where his father's going to work in a factory, seems to be making like cockpits for planes or something. That's what I could tell, which would make sense. Miyazaki and his whole thing with flight. He's obsessed with it. So that makes much. much Also,
0: it's during the war. It's three years into the war is how the narration told. So there's still three years. I mean,
1: I meant, yeah, as far as like war stuff goes, it makes sense that he would be making something that's flight related. Right. And then he's getting bullied. So he's dealing with not fitting in. And all of these elements of like, and trying to come to grips with the fact that his dad's going to marry his mom's sister. And that's a lot for a kid over the couple of <laughs> years. Like I get it. Well,
0: yeah. <laughs> it was a lot for the audience. I, I specifically remember when we get introduced to his aunt, not knowing who she is just after we get the moment where his mom died and she says, you can start calling me mom, and this this person behind me goes, "What?" <laughs> like that, <laughs> I almost started laughing because I was like, "Yeah, I feel a little weird." <laughs> just going, "Wait, what's happening here? Are you my new mommy?" Like it was weird to experience that. Like at the at the top, like your mom just died, and I don't. They don't even tell you how much time has passed. We know that it's three Years into the war when she died, but is this like a month it's, later? Is this? Like, it's a year. Yeah. Okay. It's A year. Yeah. Okay okay so not as bad but still i'm like what it's bad no I, I it's bad that, i get I that thought
1: <laughs> so when i did my review of this out of tiff and it's one of the very first youtube videos I've ever done and i compl- this is a criticism i had was just how hard it is for me to get behind wanting to feel good about this relationship <laughs> it and somebody commented on my thing and basically gave me like a youtube comment that was a wikipedia page about how supposedly common it is to marry your spouse's sibling and i'm like no it's not i don't care what your (laughs) wikipedia page says that yes i'm sure it happens okay cool so there's a name there's a name for a lot of things that happen that don't that doesn't make them common it's not common and so so there's two sides to this story i want to talk about so first i want to talk about like that right the the story of Mahito about overcoming grief, coming of age, dealing with all of this stuff, and then how he goes and experiences and comes out of it through this magical time in a fantasy world. Right, he changes. He meets his younger mother in there, a version of his younger mother, and he gets a chance to say goodbye, which I guess in a sense can be sweet but it's not really his mom it's a younger version of his mom from a different timeline so she hasn't died yet and i struggled with pretty much all of the story in the fantasy world i did not feel like it was cohesive at all i did not feel like it was detailed enough or interesting enough i felt like there were things that happened but they didn't really make a bunch of sense together, and I did not feel like they were threaded together in a way that all of his other fantasy films have felt for me. Every single yeah. one of them has felt like a journey that I could clock moments on. I was constantly going through different emotions. Patrick, I did not feel anything in this. And I mean, we're feeling film, so like that is a problem. And when one of the big issues or things that come out of this at the end is, Mahito comes out of this, and the big moment of coming of age is, like, he's able to go to Natsuko and call her mother, finally. Because he's saved her, and, like, now I'm going to embrace the fact that you want to be called my mother. Like, that doesn't get me going. Like, that doesn't make me go, yeah! I'm like, no, that's weird. (laughs) Like, it's Uh okay not to call you mother after a year. You know what I mean? So I really struggled with emotionally connecting to this movie, even though I thought the fantasy elements in it were interesting on their own. That's how I would phrase it.
0: There's a... I don't disagree. There's a disconnect culturally that we're getting that's similar to what I think I felt in Suzume, where you have earthquakes that are explained in a supernatural way, and that's cool, but because I don't experience earthquakes on a regular... I don't quite emotionally connect to that. If you were to talk about tornadoes or, you know, Southern life of some kind and connect it to a fantasy thing. Like if you were to take, I think, I don't know, let's just get absurd and say, you know, race issues in the South and you were to equate them to some supernatural thing that was happening. I think that, um, like get out was one of those things that, that, that we got where you took this thing that was familiar to an audience and you gave it some kind of supernatural twist. I felt the same way here and I think I didn't get hung up on the fact that he wasn't able to call his aunt mom. Um in in Mediterranean culture you have what what's called a kinsman redeemer. So culturally speaking, if your husband dies, then your brother has the obligation in Mediterranean culture if there's nobody else to become your kinsman redeemer to take care of the wife. This happened. Uh, in scripture. I think it was in Ruth, maybe? Yeah. I'm not sure. Not Ruth. Maybe it was a different anyway, maybe Esther. But um so I sort of was okay with that. I think for me, like you, to connect and find a a grief like resolution with the child version of something, this was almost like what we talked about with Suzume. Like how do you reconcile with a younger version of either yourself or your mom. Like he, she's not his mom at that point. There's no connective tissue. And if I'm trying to go with time travel, if I'm trying to trying to create the rules in my head, I'm like, she would not know that, but it's fantasy. And I'm willing to forgive that. But she realistically wouldn't know that he's her son, but she tells him, yeah, that's my, that's my sister. I didn't even see a reaction from him. Like what? Like there was no reaction from the audience saying, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But in my head, I'm like, that's crazy. Are you not like not okay with that? Because that's weird. And I think because of my disconnect with fantasy in general, I think there's too much of I felt like there was too much of a matter of factness to this story. Like he was able to accept everything that was going on, like the heron talking. He was like, "Okay, well, I'm just going to hit you with the bat. And when the frogs start jumping on him, he's like, okay, that's fine. No, none of this is okay. None of this is okay, dude. And so I, <laughs> I I think this is where I disconnect because some of this stuff has to have some kind of visceral, emotional reaction when it's not supposed to be normal. And I think that maybe that's Miyazaki saying, this is my world and you're just living in it. So be okay with the fact that characters are going to be okay having frogs jumping on them and then jumping into tunnels and going into uh, you know the the other worlds where they discover blocks and things like that again all that stuff was neat but i didn't get a sense of like the awe of it or the weirdness of it because we usually
1: get that through the main character that's what you're saying exactly yeah mahito exactly. would be like oh my gosh what is happening what am i going to do and he's like right i'm mad at you here I'm gonna kick you. Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming for you. You know, and and the hair is like well, you don't really want to go. through Or the, whoever, somebody like warns him, like you don't want to go. Or the, it's a uh, Himiko or whatever her name is. The uh, yeah, the granny goes with. Her. She's like you don't want to do this. And then he's just like I'm going anyway. He just like <laughs> casually like molds into the floor. Like it's like
0: yeah, what, what is happening? And I think well, and and somebody else pointed this out. It was it, it sort of related to that when that happens. Somebody mumbled in front of me, like, I think the, the aunt or whoever it was, was saying something and the, the person in the audience was like, and I'm not really important to the plot, (laughs) which she wasn't. I mean, like totally called it for the rest of the movie until we get back to the real world. She, the aunt is just there for comic relief. And so you get the laughs and we got the laughs early on with that group of old ladies who were obsessed with like canned salmon. And other things like that, and then we get this one straggler where I'm like, "That's funny," but now you have to have something to do with it. And Miyazaki's like, "Well, I'll just put this lady in her piss pocket and make it a charm." <laughs> like, all right, that's cool, I guess, but she has no purpose other than to make fun and and have little funny lines here and there.
1: It, it, well, that's exactly right. That's another example of what I was talking about: those interesting elements. So when he meets the younger version of her, I guess who makes those little dolls and she puts them around him and she's like just don't knock them over but they're like all the dolls of the grannies right there's no explanation for this whatsoever at all in the movie like why is one of the younger versions of the grannies making dolls that look like all the older grannies which she wouldn't have any way to know what they are gonna look like or are they real and so then i I was constantly kind of going back and forth in my head of like, it, what in the real world is actually accurate or not? And, right. And then you bring in the element of the the tower and like the different doors and you start, it's like this very lackadaisical version of a metaverse where, you know, there's these different universes. If you go through a different door, it's a different timeline essentially. Right. or a different time period, it, it, none of it is thoroughly explained. And so I think, yeah. I think it's okay when a fantasy movie has, like, one thing <laughs> that is not fully explained, right? Like, that's okay. Sometimes we get that, and we're like, you just get, okay, I'm going to go with that. But I felt like this had, like, yeah. so many things about it that were just, you just had to go with it.
0: Well, it was misleading from the jump, because when you read the title... And all of us do this. We read a title and we try to figure out, okay, where does this title fit in? I always like to find the title being said at some point and I give a little ding for it. And when I read The Boy and the Heron, what it should have said after watching was The Boy and the Heron and the Multiverse and the Crazy Ants and the Younger Version of His Mom and The Journey of Grief. There was just all this stuff happening because I thought you know what I think what's going to happen here is the Heron is going to be a reincarnation of his mom. Like that's what I was thinking, something, anything. And then when it got gross, when Pattinson comes out and starts talking like, like the devil, I'm like, okay, clearly not his mom, or maybe it is his mom just in the devil's clothing of some kind. But there's, there was a point, Aaron, where the Heron becomes the guy in the chair. And I didn't like that. I didn't like the fact that the Heron took a backseat to all this other stuff, to Grand Uncle and to Parakeets and to all these different things, these subplots that didn't quite mesh very well. I, I thought the coolest part of the movie was that hint to the metaverse. But then when when his young mom says, I can't go through that door, this door over here is my, you know, whatever – but it's not even a timeline. This it because I don't even think it's a different universe. I think it's a different time period. That that's the thing, and that's kind of interesting. Like, oh, okay, so it's one universe with all these doors going into different time periods. But I didn't quite understand. Like, what it would have been neat to say, okay, what 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 does that look like? What does that door lead to? Is that another place where we find out more about his mom and get a little bit more insight into to her world? as a little girl, that would have been interesting, but I think that would have added too much to it. And I think there's just a lot and it doesn't connect. It's just like Miyazaki was saying, I'm not going to be disrespectful. I'm trying to try not to be disrespectful. I feel like he has all these ideas and he was like, I don't have much time. Okay. Let me put this here and this here and this here and this here. And I need my writers to help me kind of piece these things together. And it just didn't work for me.
1: So, It's funny you mentioned the whole thing about the title because a couple things. One is they actually say the Japanese title of the movie, which it's How Do You Live? And part of this movie is based off of a book called How Do You Live? And they mention that at one point in the story where Mahito is in his room and he finds some books. and They fall off and he pulls one out and he starts reading this memoir or i think it's like a journal or diary or something that his mom book,
0: gave to him yeah. had
1: written to a baby mojito or something you know like something when she wrote when he was young when she was younger and that's the that's when they mention it but even the book itself is really like wikipedia it's not perfectly you know complete as far as the plot goes but it's basically a 15 year old boy and his uncle deals With spiritual growth, poverty, and the overall experience as human beings. (laughs) And so, Miyazaki didn't, like, directly adapt this book, right? He took some themes from it. But I completely agree with you in that when you call it The Boy and the Heron, I expect the Heron to be something meaningful. Not just a comic guide... Through the fantasy world. And that's really. Basically what he amounts to. There is one very sweet scene. Probably my favorite moment in the whole movie. Or at least one of my top two or three. Is right after he's shot him in the beak. And he's like filling in the thing to like close his beak together. And and they become, (laughs) it's cork, that's the word. And they become friends. Instead of the heron being. Antagonistic. But even then, there's no reason for the heron to be antagonistic. There's no explanation of why he's antagonistic. So there why do they need to like flip the script and become friends? And where does he go after this? And why is he still why does he not turn into a baby parakeet or par, you know, like I it's there's no logic to it at all. And so I really wonder, because to me it is so much more disjointed than any other Miyazaki movie, if you took ten years off, man, and you're extremely old at this point. <laughs> and maybe, maybe the skills are diminishing, diminishing a little bit. Like it's not something to be embarrassed about. Like that, it happens to everybody. You know what I mean? Like I don't think every Ridley Scott movie is great. The man's almost ninety himself, and you can tell there are some like diminishing returns at times to things. You know, and so. Yeah, I just don't think it was tight. Uh I think it mm-hmm. was not nearly put together in a way that that could work for me in that way. I just I wish, I wish I wish I wish that the journey through the fantasy world had emotion attached to it and I could have come out of that going, man. I am so glad Mahito experienced all of these things and this was all great. The, and I think part of it is because of the the multiple themes. Right, because you're smashing in there what I believe to be a story about Miyazaki passing the torch. I feel like it is extremely obvious. There's this whole great-uncle thing, this great-uncle subplot about the guy who is the master of this world, this dimensional Monsters, Inc. world with all these doors, and he is struggling to find someone in his family to take over the ownership of making sure these worlds stay balanced well that feels like miyazaki retiring and wanting to pass on the torch to his grandson right. and i feel like that metaphor not only isn't a great fit with the story of Mahito in general but i feel like that metaphor completely falls apart for me knowing that he's not actually retiring and giving up like it, it it's like a retirement in football or sport it loses all of its impact like i don't go back and rewatch tom brady's first retirement announcement <laughs> you know like no one cares cuz it wasn't the actual last time and so you're telling a story about struggling with retirement but you're not going to retire so i i guess i don't again don't feel emotionally impacted by
0: that yeah, and I think two things um I pulled from this is one I think Mahito needs to become a closer. I think that would be his job. <laughs> Just switch over into into <laughs> into another universe. Uh go over to Shinkai's universe and be a closer. Uh, the, yeah, uh, no, doors. And, and I think, What's up with the Doors? Yeah. Yeah, Doors. There's a there's a lot of connective tissue here that I'm I'm finding as I, as we're talking about this like, yeah, that that's something there too. You know, someone taking the place of someone else. Um but no, I, if I if I even even if I didn't see that, which I do see that now that you're talking about it, but even if I didn't, the result of that is that Mahito doesn't accept it. He's like, Nope, not gonna do it. Gonna just leave it with you, sir. In fact, it doesn't even do that. Like, Grand granduncle doesn't even pick up the blocks and say, Okay, I'll keep going. It it, it just gets destroyed. So if that's a metaphor, I think I think Miyazaki needs to stop right now. If he's saying this this movie is the one that blows up in my face. And that we just need to move on now. And I just need to let my grandson um, do the thing that he's going to do independent of, of my shadow. So it, in that case, the metaphor absolutely does work. The movie doesn't do well at all, although financially, apparently, it's, it's making a lot of money. And I think it's because two words are attached to it, Miyazaki and Ghibli. Those two words are going to get you money from the thing. And you're going to have your, you're going to have your supporters who are going to be like, it's another great one from Miyazaki. And I'm like, yeah, I guess it's another great fantasy jib jab. But I think that unintentionally the for me, the metaphor does work because from our perspective, this movie did not make sense. It wasn't one of his strongest. And as a result, you're right. He's not going to stop making movies, but I think that, this is a representation of the fact that maybe it's time to become a consultant. Maybe it's time to be a producer because you can do things and you can find success in that and you can be a writing consultant. But if this is showing that it's going to be too late to retire, it's going to be too late. You're going to hang on too long. I think it's a fantastic metaphor because at some point the world of Miyazaki might actually blow up in Studio Ghibli's face at some point, And then it could diminish Previous movies to some degree, like I, I i just I think that there could be a possibility
1: it's the sports metaphor again, go back to this again, where you retire on a high and you can't stand being away and so you come back and what happens? The batting average goes down, home runs go down, and you end up eking out an existence for three or four more years in your sport. Being a complete shell of the player that people remembered you as. And it's just an embarrassment to them and you and everybody. And it's weird because when he retired and did The Wind Rises, it's not my favorite Miyazaki movie. But I do love it and I do respect the heck out of it. And it is such a perfect, perfect, perfect swan song for him. Because it is a movie 100% about his life in his passions and his dreams and in a real world setting, like you said, like it's him being autobiographical. And so it's like, why couldn't we just let that be the end, man? It was so good. I'm not angry. I just am. I guess it's more that just disappointment in there, but I I agree with you. I think the block saying it to me, this is about him saying, It's okay that it doesn't have to be balanced exactly like I did it. And so I understand that you're going to, somebody else is going to take this on and they're going to go create what they're going to go create. And that's okay. Right. It's okay if my tower crumbles because new, new things and new life is going to come and it's going to be good. Okay. Yeah. Are going to be good stories. Yeah. That's sort of my reading of it as best (laughs) I can.
0: Grass. I mean, yeah. I okay. So if we get back to the movie specifically, I think where where I struggled with that is that the world crumbles, and I do think it's a lot like I'll I'll use a Back to the Future metaphor. So spoiler alert: if you haven't seen the movies, shame on you if you haven't. But at the end of Back to the Future three, there's a moment where Marty's like, "Hey," or his his girlfriend uh, Jennifer's like, "Hey, this thing's a race." He goes, "Yeah, your your future hasn't been written. No one's has." It's yours to make what you want. And that's kind of what I got from this. When you have Mojito just letting it go, not taking over, not being beholden to this is the world that I'm leaving. Instead, he's letting it refresh. I, I like the shot of him. I think it was the, it was almost like a parallel set of dialogue. Uh, he says, you know, three years into the war, we left Tokyo uh, and my, after my mom died and then 2 years the, the film ends with him saying 2 years after the war we return to Tokyo and the the shot the final shot of the film is him leaving and the room is empty like there's nothing there and i thought and it was abrupt too like i think people in the audience like me were like what 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 what, what? there's no it's just credits because another you know we we get some kind of resolution and i think if there was intent there, it would have been the fact that we're not writing that story. Miyazaki's like, I'm not writing Mejito's story because that story is new because he gave up the role that grand uncle wanted him to do, not just keep the universe going, but you know, be creative, build the blocks the way you want. He refused both. And instead, now he's got this life that he's living and I think Miyazaki was saying, I don't want to show anything more because that's what it is. It's a, it's tabula rasa. It's a blank slate. And now Mahito's going to live the life as he sees fit. And we can only imagine what that's going to be. I actually thought that was, if that was the the intent, I thought that was a great way to end it because contrasted with Shinkai, who uses the credits to basically say what happened to everybody, which I appreciated. Um, he doesn't do that here. Um, Miyazaki's like i feel like he wants to say this is where it where it's, where the film ends but this is not where his story ends
1: yeah i mean i i agree i <laughs> i think if this was where his story ended this would be a good ending too not as good but i think this would be a fine place to like wrap it up uh, i would hope that possibly in the future he does maybe shift more to producing versus being hands-on trying to controlling every element of the Mm -hmm. making of another film Uh, yeah maybe maybe take some advice i guess take some like you said earlier take some consultation uh, especially in the story department because yeah the animation is incredible and i and i this is why i was able to enjoy it so much the first viewing and kind of write off my not connecting with the story as, oh, it's the setting and, you know, it's a long, long way away from the subtitles. You know, maybe I'll, in English, it'll make more sense. But the animation is amazing. I love the score. Joe Asaishi has always been a, a, just incredible, and I think this is one of his best. I've listened to this a lot this year, in my top five for Spotify, actually. And I am going to probably have it in my awards consideration as well. So So there's these elements of the movie that I love. I also want to talk about some of the, like, different fantasy things. Those elements I was saying that I think are individually interesting. So the Heron, right, by himself. Really cool. I mean, I, I that's a very wacky and potentially interesting concept in my opinion did you you're the way you're looking at it. i'm not sure you agree with this
0: no i i he's he's a he's 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 sort of grotesque in some ways mm-hmm. and i think it's nice because you have this beautiful bird that we get introduced to and the what i would call the fantastic transition is when he basically throws up the human version of himself and tries to and tries to basically, it's like a it's like an organic transformer is what he is. I was hoping at some point we hear, or, 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 you know what He's trying to be. And I love the, I love the, the, the mechanic or whatever you want to call it, or the fact that he can't morph back into a full heron because he has this hole in his beak. And so it has to get, it has to get plugged up. And then there's that joke that he makes like, ah, he's like kind of choking himself because he's like, yeah, can you cut off the bottom of this? Cause it's kind of, it's kind of like scratching my throat and I can't get back to it. So I thought his his design was right on par with, with Miyazaki fantasy stuff. Um, it wasn't my favorite, but I definitely love his design. And uh, just to go to the score real quick, absolutely love the score. This, I've said this before. This is the year of, of really, really great music from a number of not just scores, but soundtracks. Like just complete musical experiences in a lot of the movies that I've seen. I'm excited for uh, what we're covering next week. I'm pretty sure there's going to be some great music in that too, because of the time period. And I just, I think that the times that we get just piano in this film, speak to the intimate moments that Miyazaki is trying to visually give us. So it, the score works perfectly for the moments that we have, even if the whole is not great. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree that the score sometimes is kind of kind of outshining the movie because I kind of I focus more on that and I was like, yep, I'm gonna cue this up at some point and just have it on, on background. But uh but yeah the heron he's my second place vote for like most creative uh creative fantasy creature.
1: Okay. Well what's your first place vote then?
0: Well if you if you don't know by <laughs> now it's the parakeet king, man. I mean that guy's <laughs> awesome. I mean he's a soldier. He's got like I mean he's Regal and strong and ridiculous looking, all at the same time. I love that. I love the transition when they get to the real world. They turn into parakeets. It's like actually like little little parakeets, and they poop all over everybody. That's awesome. A lot but of yeah, detailed parake-
1: poop in this movie.
0: A lot of lot, a, the- lot of poop
1: on <laughs> people on windowsills. There's a lot of <laughs> fur poop. Yeah,
0: I don't know. I don't know what to do. So like, thanks, thanks, sir. I appreciate the uh, the poop all over the place. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. the Parakeet King was my guy.
1: The parakeet king being voiced by Dave Bautista is also an excellent choice. Yes. Um, I thought that was really, really good. Just the parakeets in general, I adored. I thought they were hilariously cute. And exactly what I expect out of a Miyazaki movie is you take this bird that is traditionally small and tiny and loud and nobody gives a second thought to and you turn it into this big, fat, fluffy creature's. Like, like, whole race of creatures that walk around with sharp knives, eating people. (laughs) It it is like turning the tables on humans or whatever. And it's just that, in again, in and of itself, like I was locked into the idea of this world where those existed. And if you had done that in a way that it made some sort of sense with something else in the movie, like I could have really had something there. I could have latched onto that because I thought that was just phenomenal and so cool likewise the wara wara which are basically like a white version of soot sprites but they're also essentially the underworld version of disney's pixar's soul like (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah awesome in and of itself that in this world there are these little white creatures that you feed and then they like basically they're kirbys (laughs) that's what my daughter (laughs) left the movie my daughter (laughs) my daughter goes so we all were born from kirby
0: (laughs) and i was like i picked that up yeah
1: okay i guess you're right and so you know (laughs) they they blow up and they turn into balloons and they go up and that's what the movie says is that they rise up and they be born into the world as souls individually like it's like patrick somebody wrote all of these things down And they were like, oh, what if we did this? But there is zero tying these things together for any narrative purpose. So if you give me a world that has that in it, and that is a meaningful part of connecting it to how this world interacts with the rest of the universe, okay. But it makes no sense because it's like they say float up into the sky and into the overworld and get born. Well, I thought the only way to go into the world was through doors. And then what door are they going through? Like it's. Yeah. None of it makes any sense. It never comes up again. The world. It's like one scene. It's like, oh, we we were there. It's like we were in the swamp, uh, or the fire forest or whatever, fire swamp. And then we just moved on. And then. Yeah. It's it's wacky because I loved the visualization of them. And it was such a cute moment. But it was empty.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think the best way to sum this up is that, you know, fantasy without meaning is meaningless. Really having no kind of attachment to these things that might look good and might be visually appealing, but at the end of the story, that's all they are. And if that's all they are, then we just got a lot of great eye candy for a couple of hours with a quick narrative thrown in for good measure. And I think that's kind of how you and I both landed here was the fact that, that's what we got and maybe it's maybe it's an indication that that portion could be the benefit for consultation on future films like Miyazaki could say look this looks really good this is potentially instead of trying to fit them into a story craft a story where these might then have some of those kinds of characteristics so bring back Kirby when it makes sense but when you bring it in without meaning then you're just creating more confusion
1: for your audience. 100% agree. And I yeah. also wanted to just give a quick shout out animation-wise to the opening scene. It is one of the best sequences Studio Ghibli movie has ever animated. It is phenomenal. The yeah. visualization of him running through the fire and its in the horrorness of it's almost like people are like scream paintings. They are melting the shadowy melting other humans that that Mahito is running through during this fire I, that was um
0: incredible i thought yeah i also like the the sound editing here the um the foley work especially at the beginning where it's really quiet and you hear him running up the wooden stairs and how i was gonna notice stuff.
1: the clicking of the shoes yeah
0: like that stuff is really fantastic and you hear the fire get louder and louder you see the flicker, and then you start seeing it get louder, seeing it get more vivid, and then the sound comes in. So the, the sound editing is fantastic in here, and it was more pronounced at the beginning, I think, as a result of that visual, like, wow factor that you that you indicated, but I definitely want to throw some love at the sound editing team, the Foley artists, because they did fantastic.
1: Good, good call out there. Uh, yeah. I think, last but not least, anything uh, cast-wise for the English cast, I thought Pattinson was phenomenal as the heron he just the different voices that he does for it was really impressive for someone who's not necessarily a trained voice actor uh, to be doing uh i think i enjoyed hearing christian bale as his father as well even though it's in you know minimal amount of dialogue and then, you know, for me, it was Dave Bautista, I think, as a parakeet king, king. I think he was the most perfectly accurate casted voice. It just fit.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree. I think Dave Bautista is my favorite in terms of who I heard, but I, I really want to throw a bit of like a superstar status to Mark Hamill. Now, this guy has found a second life beyond Luke Skywalker, which I think is fantastic. He's become an incredible voice actor, the Joker. Um, he's had some cameo appearances as characters on The Flash, and if you close your eyes, even in these live-action series that he's in, you cannot tell it's Mark Hamill. Like, I think he and Bradley Cooper are two of probably the best voice actors that hide their voices the, the best. Like, when I hear Rocket Raccoon, cannot hear Bradley Cooper, because he's just phenomenal at altering his voice in a way that fits the character, and so... It surprised me. I remember vaguely seeing Mark Hamill's name on the voice cast, but when I saw it pop up as Grand Uncle, I was like, I didn't even know that it was you. And I think that's, I think that's, a, I think that's a compliment—the fact that you can't tell that it is, unlike Dave Batista, who has a distinct voice and whose voice fits that character. I think there's something fantastic. Christian Bale, I think, is pretty familiar—that sort of slight english accent that was coming out i was like oh yeah definitely the christian bale that i know but yeah i i love the voice cast here i mean it was i think that that miyazaki's two for two on the uh, on the english dub uh with um with krasinski and company on the wind rises i thought this was another knockout in terms of the entire cast and it it definitely as i said at the beginning of the episode it helped me get into the story more because i wasn't needing to read um, I love reading. I just don't like reading when I don't understand fantasy. So give me that crutch. Give me that handicap. And I'm I'm a happy camper and a great cast for that, too.
1: Awesome. Well, I completely agree with all of that. Is there anything we missed that we need to talk I about?
0: No? I don't think so. I think uh, hopefully we won't get hit with bird poop anytime soon because there was a lot of that, as you mentioned. But uh, no,
1: <laughs> a lot of that. I think one last thing, one of, maybe the other funniest moment in the movie is when Mahito and all the birds come out of the door at the very end. Or no, not at the very end. The first time when he comes out the door to hide and then he goes back in and his dad is like, Mahito <laughs> turned into a parakeet. And just, I lost it.
0: I just that lost line, it. That line, Aaron, is it's what wraps up the Matter of factness that I spoke to earlier, like what father would see a bunch of parakeets flying through a door and being like, "My son turned into a parakeet." If your son disappears, like I would think, where did my son go? Not that he turned into a bird, but but yeah, I think the audience that I was with laughed as well. They were like, "That's pretty funny." <laughs> Don't marry his aunt, please. That's that's just weird. No, they didn't say that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Feeling Film. Uh, next week, we are in the theater. We are watching The Iron Claw, one of my most anticipated films on the back end of 2023. It's got Zac Efron. It's got Jeremy Allard White, and it's got wrestling. So three for three. I'm hoping it's great. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, Aaron. Thanks for putting it on the schedule. And that will do it for us. Thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. very active in both places and would love to chat
0: and if you want to connect with me you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter be sure to tag me in any comments so that i'll be notified and not miss you
1: once again thank you for listening we'll be back soon until then stay positive
0: and keep feeling filmed